0: All right, so today we're going to do the Roman Catholic Counter-Reformation, uh, and I think this is a fascinating, fascinating aspect of the Reformation period, and there are things about it that, uh, that really cheer me, and there are things about it that break my heart. Um, let's begin with a word of prayer, and then dive right in. Heavenly Father, thank you for the greatness of your love for us Thank you that over all of history, though characters come and go, though events come and go, nations rise and fall, families rise and fall, dynasties rise and fall. Father, you nonetheless are ever-present. You, you hover over all. You penetrate all. And you control all. We thank you, Father, for your goodness. We thank you, Father, for uh, for the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ, God Himself becoming a man and fulfilling in in perfection all that you required of us, and then offering Himself as as that perfect sacrifice, the one that satisfies you, that that expiates for our sins, that atones for us, that, that covers us over with his own righteousness, so that when you see us, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We thank you, Father, for <clears throat> the many faithful people who've gone before us. And we ask you to make us faithful to you as well, that we might <clears throat> hand on to our children and to our children's children Indeed, to, who knows, could be thousands of generations yet to come. And unsullied, glad tidings of Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Asking your Holy Spirit to enlighten us. Amen. Amen. So, come on in. and Let's get going. I'll quickly mention for those who are coming in late late that I did say, good morning, I did say uh, a few minutes ago that because we haven't had question and answer time in any of our earlier sessions, and we're not going to have it today either because I've got a full lesson, um, if enough of you say, hey, we'd like to come back and do nothing but Q&A for an entire session, uh, then... I'll be glad to do that. I would come next week, same time, though it's not already scheduled. We'd go ahead and come and be glad to just do Q&A with you. So, think about it between now and the end. If you have questions, uh, we might be able to do that at that time. This, uh, this morning, we're talking about, um, we're still in this series, Great Heroes of the Great Reformation. There are also some anti-heroes of the Great Reformation, and so we'll be talking a bit about those uh, today as well. But uh, we're focusing on the Roman Catholic counter-reformation, and you have in front of you there a couple of pictures, they're very dark for some reason, they're nice and bright on my screen, but um, to the left is Cardinal Gasparo Contarini, and he is one of, I think, one of the great heroes of the Reformation. You're going to learn more about him in a few minutes. Uh, He was one of the leaders of what are called by historians the Roman Catholic Evangelicals. And that's a rather interesting term. About 25 years ago, a fellow named Keith Fournier uh, wrote a book called Evangelical Catholics, uh, which I reviewed for a couple of different publications. And it's an amazing book because uh, he is telling his own Testimony in earlier parts of the book. He was born into a, a, a Pentecostal family. Uh, he kind of shifted his thinking little by little to Baptist and then to uh, Presbyterian and then to Anglican and finally he became Roman Catholic. And he is pointing out all the many, many things on which Roman Catholicism and evangelicalism agree. And he's quite right about all of those things. And he's saying, we can say that there are evangelical Roman Catholics. And as I read the book, I was moved. You could tell this man really loves the Lord. There was no question about that. But I was also disturbed by something, and that is that he basically swept under the rug those very important differences and acted as if they really weren't there. And I'm reminded of the fact that over 99% of All of our DNA as human beings, homo sapiens, right? Is shared by chimpanzees. And so a 1% difference can make a very big difference, can't it, right? So we need to keep that in mind. Contarini though was one of the Roman Catholic evangelicals of the 16th century during the period of the Reformation. and, And I hope that you'll come to admire him. On the right is St. Ignatius de Loyola. Uh, He was the founder of the Jesuits. We'll talk about him a bit more later on. He was probably the most uh, important figure in the Roman Catholic counter-reformation insofar as that counter-reformation really became focused on the attempt to destroy Protestantism, all right? Um, and he was a man of, of very deep faith, a man of, of great commitment and personal integrity. Uh, he's a man that, again, I admire, though I disagree with him in some very important ways. So um, <clears throat> I want to talk first a little bit about uh, the, the Reformation and divisions in the 16th century Roman Catholic Church. Here are some uh, some. Different parties so to speak all of which were in the Roman Catholic Church and that's important to keep in mind And the first party we've spent the last five weeks talking about that is the Protestants None of them wanted to leave the Roman Catholic Church All of them wanted to stay in it It was when the Roman Catholic Church particularly at the Council of Trent, which we're going to talk about this morning made it impossible for them to stay that they began to actually split off from it. But these Protestant reformers, people like Luther, Melanchthon, Zwingli, Calvin, Knox, Bootser, Bullinger, and uh, Cranmer, Archbishop Cranmer in England, these were one sort of party within the Roman Catholic Church. Another is the Roman Catholic Evangelicals. Then we have the Society of Jesus or the Jesuits. We have the Council of Trent and a variety of different parties all represented there. You'll get some taste of that in a few minutes. We have the papacy itself. Uh, We have revival going on in the various religious orders. We'll cover all of these, uh, or some of these anyway, in a few minutes. And then we have the mystics of the new spirituality. And I'm just going to talk about two, but there were actually quite a few others. And then finally, we'll take a quick look at extra European Roman Catholic expansion. So that's sort of a a roadmap of where we're going this morning. And the reason I bring this up right now is sort of uh, to, to point out to you that one of the impressions that many Protestants have of the Roman Catholic Church is, aha, there's unity. And after all, Protestant is so divided, and Pro- Protestantism is so divided. After all, there are 33,000 different Protestant denominations. That's a figure that you'll can see commonly bandied about. Actually, it's not true. There are perhaps several hundred Protestant denominations but somebody managed to come up with 33,000 by some pretty interesting math. (laughs) But that's a common charge. Protestantism is so deeply divided and Roman Catholicism is monolithic, right? And Jesus, after all, prayed that his church would be one. So Rome gets to say, we are one. And the Protestants are deeply divided. Therefore, the Protestants are not the true church. We're the true church, right? What I wanna point out to you is that that unity is Pretty superficial. And I'll get back to that issue in a little bit. Um, So we start with the Roman Catholic evangelicals. These were, uh, most of them, strongly affected by St. Augustine's theology. His, His affirmation that original sin made man incapable of bringing himself to God in true repentance and true faith because he was in fact dead dead in trespasses and sins as paul puts it in ephesians chapter two right you we were all dead in trespasses and sins by nature children of wrath sons of disobedience right Uh, and but god but god made us alive in christ jesus this augustinian anthropology fed the augustinian theology that said that god unilaterally by sheer grace without without our deserving anything gave us new life and it was because god first did that that we were able to believe that we were able to embrace the gospel that is the power of god for salvation to everyone who believes all right so The Roman Catholic evangelicals were strongly affected by Augustine's theology and therefore they mostly agreed with the reformers doctrine of justification by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone because that was the implication of Augustine's teaching. Uh, They disagreed though with the reformers break from allegiance to the papacy. They kept thinking there's gotta be a way to stay within the Roman Catholic church and to bring about reform in here, right? So, you know, they're, they're like some friends of mine who have stayed in the United Presbyterian Church despite the fact that it is apostate as all get out. And God bless them, they have just insisted somehow or other we can bring about reform here. And who knows, maybe. Uh, I know that it's been happening in another of the mainline Protestant denominations, the United Methodist Church. There is real revival happening in that denomination. There's, there's real restoration of orthodoxy happening there, which is a big surprise to me, I have having left that back in 1980 um, or 81. But thank God some people stayed and they fought. Uh, the Roman Catholic evangelicals had mixed views on the Eucharist. Some of them insisted on transubstantiation, some embraced luther's doctrine of consubstantiation some embraced john calvin's doctrine of the spiritual presence of christ in the in the eucharist the bread and the wine uh, of communion Uh, and a few a few embraced the purely symbolic view of the bread and wine in the lord's supper Um, they agreed entirely with the reformers' insistence that there must be moral reform in the Roman Catholic Church. As we talked about in the very first week of this, the moral state of the church on the eve of the Reformation was truly hideous. You had popes, you had cardinals, you had archbishops, you had bishops, you had priests, you had monks who had multiple concubines, multiple bastard children. Uh, You had... Children who were being ordained bishops at ages 8 and 9 and 10 because of political concerns. And those children were the children of these priests and monks who, of course, had vows of celibacy. I mean, the moral state of the Roman Catholic Church on the eve of the Reformation was horrendous, which is not to say that there were no people in it who were solid, fine, godly people. There were. There were many of them but it was dominated by the most vicious. So the Roman Catholic evangelicals agreed with the reformers that there must be moral reform of the church. Uh, From the period of roughly 1521 to 1541, they worked to reform the Church of Rome from within towards a more biblical theology and practice and thus to win back the Protestants into the one true church, says Nick Needham, whose Two thousand years of Christ's power part three Renaissance and Reformation. I will tell you right now very explicitly My lectures for this have been very very heavily based on this book um, There's just no way that I could have boiled everything down into six 45 minute sessions without his help So I'm very grateful to Nick um, Somebody who we met when we lived in Scotland as a matter of fact wonderful scholar So who were the key figures in this? Well, for one, Johann von Staupitz. Do you remember John Staupitz, who was Martin Luther's spiritual guide in the Augustinian monastery? Uh, He was a Roman Catholic evangelical. Gasparo Contarini, Juan de Valdez, Albert Pigius, Jacob Saraletto, Gregorio Corsese, Reginald Pohl, an Englishman, Johann Gropper. Girolamo Seripando and Giovanni Morone are some other major figures in this. Uh, We'll give you a little more info on a few of these. Uh, In 1537, brought together by the Pope for a sort of a council on the necessity of reforming the church, right? These men and a few others issued... Uh, a document called *Concilium de Emendanda Ecclesia*, the consultation on reforming the church, that was a forthright condemnation of the moral state of the Roman Catholic Church at the time, uh, and embraced a lot of the the doctrines in terms of the gospel and so on of the Protestants. Uh, the Pope, having called for the council for this this uh, consultation, right? Refused to publish the document that his own people put together. But somebody leaked it. I mean, leaks are no new thing to American politics, right? Somebody leaked it. It got published. uh, And it spread rapidly all over Europe. Thousands and thousands of copies. And ultimately, the Roman Inquisition placed it on what was called the Index of Forbidden Books. And we'll hear about that a little bit more later. This was... We can't let anybody else know about this stuff, right? Okay, now, some of the leading uh, Roman Catholic evangelicals, Johannes von Staupitz, Luther's spiritual guide, uh, he agreed with almost all of Luther's doctrine, but he couldn't break with the papacy. Nonetheless, all of Staupitz's writings were placed on the index of forbidden books, all of them. Uh, Staupitz wrote this one time to Luther. And this gives you some idea of the spirit of the man. He says, you seem to me to condemn many outward things which do not affect a sinner's justification. Why do you hate monasticism so much when many monks have lived holy lives? There is nothing that men cannot abuse. Remember that, there's nothing that men cannot abuse. Do not condemn things which are not important. <clears throat> Although you must, of course, speak out on matters of faith. Now, um, what Luther found was that the more he spoke out on those matters of faith, the more the papacy in Rome opposed him. And it forced him to recognize more and more of the implications of what he was saying. And he would either have to withdraw some of what he had said, but he was concerned con, con- he was convinced that these things were biblical or he would have to go ahead and go another step follow them out to their logical conclusions Uh, the next one is Cardinal Gasparo Contarini whom I mentioned before Uh, he, he was a true leader of the Roman Catholic Evangelicals here's one quick quote from him by faith we have a twofold righteousness first an inward righteousness of our own and the love and grace by which we are made partakers of the divine nature. Second, the righteousness of Christ given and imputed to us. Now this is classic Roman Catholic theology, right? So far this is classic Roman Catholic theology. But his next sentence puts him firmly in Luther's camp and in the camp of Calvin and Zwingli and all the other reformers, right? We ought to trust in Christ's righteousness bestowed on us and not in our own inward holiness and grace. That statement, the Council of Trent condemned and anathematized. We'll get to that in a minute, in a few minutes, right? It, It said, whoever teaches that should be under the divine curse, right? That's what it means to anathematize something. Juan de Valdez uh, was strongly influenced by Erasmus and Luther. He hosted Bible study and prayer every Sunday in his home. He was a noble. Uh, He emphasized personal experience with Christ, dismissing as mere opinion any faith that was based only on the church's teaching or on reason. Any faith that was based only on the church's teaching or only on reason now notice he's not against reason he's against autonomous reason he's against reason in the absence of the revelation of god in scripture right and you'll compare in a few minutes his understanding there with that of ignatius loyola who will have a very interesting thing to say you'll you'll see it when we get to the quote Another was Albert Pigius, a Dutch theologian. He was anti-Augustinian on original sin and on predestination, and he opposed Luther and Calvin on those. He defended the papal, uh, the, the infallibility of the pope, but he understood justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, almost identically with the Protestants, and many later Protestants highly respected him. Uh, John Owen, a great Puritan theologian, quoted him extensively in many of his writings, uh, and he and John Calvin had a lot of writing back and forth between each other. Cardinal Jacob Sadeletto was an Italian humanist and biblical scholar, co-author of the uh, Concilium de Emendanda Ecclesia, uh, and he greatly admired Melanchthon and Bootser and and he wrote. While, uh, while Calvin was out of Geneva, he wrote to the Genevans who had declared themselves officially Protestant, trying to persuade them to come back into the Roman Catholic Church. And he said basically, okay, fine, you're right on the doctrine of justification, but let's not abandon the unity of the church. Let's not abandon our, our fidelity to the Pope, the successor of Peter, right? The, the earthly head of the church, come back in. And John Calvin wrote a rebuttal to that. Um, from which I quoted a little bit uh, a couple of weeks ago when we talked about Calvin there was Gregorio Cortese a Benedictine monk a patristic scholar sympathetic to Luther's writings a member of Contarini's reforming group uh, and he also was a co-author of the Concilium Uh, and even after he was a co-author of the Concilium uh, Pope uh, Paul III elevated uh, Cortese to the position of cardinal so you can see that, that at this period in the church, all of these different ideas were still thriving together within the Roman communion. Reginald, there's a D missing there. Reginald Pole was an English noble, a humanist scholar, a friend of Erasmus and of Contarini. And uh, he was opposed to Henry VIII's break with the papacy. And I think there's plenty of good reason to think that Henry had some problems there. I mean, his main deal was uh, he couldn't control himself uh, sexually and he also was concerned about the succession to the throne there. He, needed a, he wanted a male heir, uh, but that was his basic reason for breaking with the papacy. Seems to me pretty superficial, um, but Pole opposed Henry on that. Uh, for that reason, he knew that, uh, that uh, he would be persecuted and so he fled from England. He wrote a a defense of the unity of the church against Henry, and he also was a co author of the Concilium. Uh, He was then later on one of three papal legates over the first session of the Council of Trent, which we'll talk about in a moment. And one final major one of of these is Johann Gropper, a German theologian, a disciple of Erasmus. Uh, In 1538, he published the book Enchiridion, which is basically handbook. It's a handbook of doctrine, which was later placed on Rome's index of forbidden books. Uh, He compromised deeply with Protestant theology on the doctrine of justification. He embraced most of what the Protestants were saying. He taught a double justice or twofold righteousness. And here's a a quote from Needham about his teaching. Christ's righteousness was inwardly imparted to believers when, uh, when they did good works. But because sin remained in believers, spoiling their best performance, they could never perfectly meet God's requirement. Therefore, when believers stood before God in judgment, he would graciously impute to their account just so much of Christ's forensic righteousness, that's forensic meaning courtroom, this is the basis of judgment, right, as would cover the gap, right? Right? So the difference here is that in Protestant thought, Christ's righteousness is the only thing that stands before God in judgment. For him, yeah, you've got some righteousness of your own. It's not enough to qualify you to get into heaven. So Jesus gives you just enough of his to make up the difference, Right? Um, he cooperated very heavily with Martin Bootzer in producing a joint statement on justification called the Regensburg Book, and we'll learn a bit about, more about that later. I'm going to skip over these next two just for time's sake, uh, but any of you can get the PPT and get more details here. The last point here, though, is that uh, the Roman Catholic evangelicals became most influential in 1539 to 41. Uh, Leading to a series of Roman Catholic and Protestant meetings authorized by Emperor Charles V and Pope Paul III that were aimed to restore the unity of the church. And one of those meetings was the Colloquy of Regensburg or Radisbon, in 1541. This is a little detailed. I'm gonna go over it fairly quickly but it's a very significant point in Reformation history. Cardinal Contarini presided at this. And Groper and Pigius were with him along with other leading Roman Catholics, including Roman Catholic evangelicals and non-evangelicals. Melanchthon, Bootser, and John Calvin were the leading Protestants at this same meeting, right? And they produced a common statement on original sin and justification by faith. And here are a few excerpts. Sorry that that's so little, you probably can't read it. Uh, But first off, they said, No Christian should doubt that after the fall of our first parent, all human beings are, as the apostle says, born children of wrath and enemies of God, and thereby are in death and slavery to sin. That was Augustinian anthropology beautifully stated. And it was a total repudiation of the semi-Pelagian and Pelagian anthropology that later came to dominate Roman Catholic Anthropology, Roman Catholic doctrine of man, that said, "Oh no, the fall injured us, but it didn't kill us. It it impeded our ability to come to God, but it didn't destroy that ability." Right. Um, Likewise, no Christian should question that nobody can be reconciled with God nor set free from slavery to sin except by Christ, the one mediator between God and human beings by whose grace we are not only reconciled to God and set free from slavery to sin but also made sharers in the divine nature and children of God. Adults do not obtain these blessings of Christ except by the prevenient movement of the Holy Spirit. In other words, you're not able to come to Christ on your own. Uh, by which their mind and will are moved to hate sin, for as St. Augustine says, it is impossible to begin a new life if we do not repent of the former one. The sinner is justified by a living and efficacious faith, for through it we are releasing we are leasing uh, and pleasing and acceptable to God on account of Christ. Living faith is that which both appropriates mercy in Christ, believing that the righteousness which is in Christ is freely imputed to it, and at the same time receives the promise of the Holy Spirit and love. Therefore, the faith that truly justifies is that faith which is effectual through love. Nevertheless, it remains true that it is by this faith that we are justified, that is accepted and reconciled to God inasmuch as it appropriates the mercy and righteousness which were imputed to us on account of Christ and his merit, not on account of the worthiness or perfection of the righteousness imputed to us in Christ. We don't get any of our justification based on what becomes our own righteousness. It's all Christ's. Same thing that Contarini had said that we quoted before. Every Christian should learn that this grace and this regeneration have not been given to us so that we might remain idle in that stage of our renewal, which we had first obtained, but so that we may grow in everything into him who is the head. Therefore, the people must be taught to devote effort to this growth, which indeed happens through good works, both internal and external, which are commanded and commended by God to these works God has promised a reward on account of Christ good things in this life as much for the body as for the soul and after this life in heaven therefore although the inheritance of eternal life is due to the regenerate on account of this promise as soon as they are reborn in Christ when you are reborn bingo your inheritance is guaranteed right Nevertheless, God also renders a reward to good works, not according to the substance of the works, but to the extent uh, that they are performed in faith and proceed from the Holy Spirit who dwells in us, free choice concurring as a partial agent. This was a brilliant document. Uh, Now, those who say that we are justified by faith alone should at the same time teach the doctrine of repentance, of the fear of God, of the judgment of God, and of good works, and that is to prevent this way of speaking, faith alone, from being misunderstood you see what they're doing they're responding to the charge by many roman catholics that the doctrine of justification by grace alone through faith alone in christ alone led to antinomianism to a rejection of god's law to to sinful living hey you know since i'm under grace can't i sin you know right well that's what paul addresses in romans chapter six Uh, So they reached a consensus there at Regensburg on justification, but they were not able to reach consensus on the Eucharist. The Roman Catholic evangelicals insisted still on transubstantiation. The Protestants refused that because not only did they find that there was no biblical basis for it, they couldn't derive it from any teaching in Scripture, but also... Uh, They believed that it led inexorably to idolatrous worship of the communion bread and wine and to the doctrine of the mass as a propitiatory sacrifice of Christ which undermined the gospel that Christ's sacrifice on the cross was sufficient, right? Um, The failure of Regensburg marked the end of the Roman Catholic evangelicals official influence in the papal court and some of them actually wound up leaving the Roman Catholic Church after that, doing the same thing that the great Protestants had done. Uh, many leading Roman churchmen rejected the joint Roman Protestant statement on justification by, by faith as a vile Lutheran heresy. Paradoxically, some Protestants, including Martin Luther, rejected it as a compromise with Rome. You know, careful if, you, if you're middle of the road, you're gonna get hit by cars going both directions, right? Um, <laughs> Uh, Pope Paul III removed Contarini from all positions of influence and the great Catholic evangelical leader died a year later as a result of the Catholic evangelical failure Augustinian theology fell into disfavor in Rome and the way was clear for a policy of reforming the church not in order to win back the Protestants but in order to make the church an effective instrument for their extermination right. no, I have just a few minutes left, right? So I, oh, goodness. No, wait a minute. We, we finish at 10.15, right? right? I thought you had signaled me that I had five minutes. I 20. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. Super. Oh, okay. So we come now to the, the real counter-reformation in the Roman Catholic Church. And this is especially focused in the Society of Jesus, founded uh, by the Spanish Roman Catholic Ignatius Loyola. Um, Spain at this time was the most intensely Roman Catholic country of Europe. Everybody thinks of Italy all the time, but as a matter of fact, Italy was loaded with evangelicals, with followers of Luther and Calvin. Many of them were there uh, and Italy has never been particularly faithful to the popes despite the fact that Rome is there that the Vatican is there right Spain has been the most committed to the papacy of all the nations for many centuries and there are various reasons for that Uh, largely the fact that the Muslims occupied most of Spain for several centuries and so the Christians in Spain felt of uh, the necessity to be tied closely to Rome for their own protection. And ultimately, the, the Roman popes helped to deliver Spain from Muslim domination, so you can understand this. But this was the place where Roman, uh, Roman Catholic and Spanish nationalist thought were wedded together. And one person who exemplified that was Ignatius Loyola, who was a Spanish military noble crippled in battle in 1521, uh, who then, during his recovery, read the Lives of the Saints uh, and various uh, uh, other, other books, uh, particularly by the Carthusian monk Ludolf of Saxony, a 14th century monk, uh, his Life of Our Lord Jesus Christ. As a result of this reading, Loyola uh, renounced his worldly ambitions uh, became uh, a monk uh, at a Dominican convent in Manresa. He was devoted to prayer and ascetic self discipline. Um, on, uh, let's see, uh, on uh, Ludolf of Saxony's Life of Our Lord Jesus Christ, he based his spiritual exercises, which was one of the most influential religious books ever written millions and millions of copies not only sold but intensely read and followed over the centuries since then Uh, his purpose was to bring the soul into total obedience to Christ through total unquestioning submission to the infallible Roman Catholic Church and here's the quote that I uh, alluded to a while ago that stands so contrary to that of Pigius right Um, setting aside all personal judgment of our own, and let me just point out to you, this is one of those instances in which an idea is self-refuting, because of course it has to be your personal judgment that you should set aside personal judgment. Right? (laughs) My old friend Ron Nash, the philosopher, said, logic is a great crap detector. Okay? (laughs) Well, self-refutation is one particular kind of mental crap. all All right. But, Ignatius says, setting aside all personal judgment of our own, we must keep our minds prepared and ready to obey in all things the true bride of Christ our Lord, which is our Holy Mother, the Catholic Church. To make perfectly sure of our orthodoxy, if the Catholic Church proclaims something to be black, which appears to be white, we must accept that it is black. Mm -hmm. That became the motto of the Jesuits. Absolute submission of the mind to the church. Now compare that with Luther at Worms, remember? He said, I am bound by the word of God. Unless I am shown out of the very word of God itself or by by right reason from the word of God that I'm wrong, I must follow this path, okay? I didn't quote that properly there but at any rate very different way of approaching. In 1539 uh, uh, Ignatius and his companions took on the name Society of Jesus and they had a clearly military flavor of how they organized themselves. In 1540 Paul III recognized the Jesuits as the religious order with Loyola its general and they had four vows. Three of them were common to all the religious orders. Uh, Poverty, celibacy, and obedience to superiors. But a fourth was their extraordinary vow, uh, namely going without delay wherever the Pope might send send them. And this led to a very special relationship between the Jesuits and the papacy. The Jesuits becoming the chief defenders of absolute papal authority over the church for the next three centuries and more. By the 17th century, 400 Jesuit schools and colleges had been founded all across Europe. They were known for intense academic endeavor and very great academic endeavor. The Jesuit colleges, the Jesuit universities are tough places and they result in people who are truly learned. Um, they, uh, they, They also became known for this saying, Give me a child before his, he is seven, and he will remain a, a Catholic for the rest of his life. They named Aristotle their chief guide in philosophy and Thomas Aquinas in theology. Uh, they made Thomas the most widely studied theologian in the Roman Catholic Church. Prior to that, it had been Peter Lombard whose ideas had actually heavily influenced both Luther and Calvin. So the the Society of Jesus really turned the Roman Catholic Church away from that tradition. Uh, the destruction of Protestantism became the Jesuits' chief goal. Popes sent into every nation uh, sent them into every nation uh, that had been affected by Protestantism. And Protestant governments put many Jesuits to death not simply because of their religion but because they were actually committed to the principle that assassination of a protestant ruler was a, a service to god um, sweeping aside all pardon me sweeping aside the catholic evangelicals loyola's spiritual knights taught and spread a new fiercely anti-protestant expression of roman catholic theology and spirituality throughout europe um, with one hand they dealt staggering blows to the reformation with the other they founded orphanages schools centers for the care of the poor houses for reforming prostitutes and societies for ransoming christian captives from muslims you notice how people can be very mixed the same person can do many good things and many bad things i've been pouring rapidly through the old testament and it is amazing every character in it is mixed, except one, and that's God, right? Um, The Dominicans and Franciscans fought the Jesuits for papal favor, the Augustinians fought the Jesuit theology on sin and grace, and many Roman Catholic moral teachers tried to combat what they believed were the Jesuits' low and easygoing views of morality, for example, especially Uh, their willingness to lie as spies in Protestant countries in order to undermine Protestant governments and favoring the assassination of Protestant heads of state. All right, now the official response to the Reformation by the Roman Catholic Church comes with the Council of Trent. There are three sessions in this. I'm gonna have to zip through this super fast. Why can't we go another half an hour? Uh, uh, This was the second great instrument of the Counter-Reformation. And the council was not a Western ecumenical council, but a Roman ecumenical council, because it excluded the Protestants, who were still, at this point, part of the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, There were three bodies of delegates, the, the Italians, who were papalists, the Spaniards, who were imperialists with Charles V, and favored conciliarism, uh, the possibility of the, the uh, councils having greater authority than the popes, and the Roman Catholic evangelicals. The first stage of Trent took place from 1545 to 47, and they first treated the doctrine of authority. Where's your authority come from? And they had three competing views here. One, equally in scripture and traditions, the papal legate Del Monte uh, held this position, most of the bishops opposed this position. They insisted that only apostolic tradition was authoritative. Uh, there, I'm sorry, that, that was sort of the, the conclusion of this. Uh, the three parties were, one, apostolic tradition equal, was equal in authority with scripture. Two, apostolic tradition uh, was subordinate to scripture. And three, scripture contained all saving truth, but apostolic tradition uh, is inspired and infallible as the interpreter of scripture. Those were the three uh, basic views uh, held there. And the council wound up deciding this way. The church venerates with the same sense of loyalty and reverence the Old and New Testaments and, quote, all doctrinal and moral traditions concerning faith and morality as coming from the mouth of Christ or being inspired by the Holy Spirit and preserved in continuous succession in the Catholic Church. So here is how tradition comes ultimately to dominate over the scripture. And yet, I, w- I always wanna say to my Roman Catholic friends, look, you and I both agree that the Bible is God's word. Granted that, let's go to our point of common agreement and see what that says about our doctrinal disagreements. Okay? Um, The next major doctrine that they addressed was justification, which they said is not only forgiveness of sins, but also the sanctification and renewal of the inward man. I Won't read the whole quote, but you see what happens here is that they combine justification and sanctification. And then justification is no longer this forensic act in which God declares us righteous because of the imputed righteousness of Christ. It is also this transformative act But scripture really does keep the two distinct, and it's very important that we do so. Because as long as you combine them uh, together, right, and as long as you have not become sinlessly perfect yet, you have no assurance, you never have assurance, that you're not still condemned in God's sight. But Paul can write in Romans 8.1, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, it's because Rome followed this teaching that it could also say in the Council of Trent that anyone who believed that he had absolute assurance of salvation, not because of special revelation, but because he believed that his salvation was assured because of his faith in God, that person was anathema. Rome says it's impossible to have assurance of salvation apart from special revelation from God. And that, I believe, robs us of that great comfort of Romans chapter 8 verse 1 um, uh, well I have to skip over that we're at 1014 this is terrible yeah. ah well the papacy was badly corrupted in the middle ages uh, reform was essential to survival of the Roman Catholic Church Paul III strongly supported reform, promoted Contarini and the like, recognized the Jesuits, and summoned the first meeting of Trent. So we're looking at the start of the reform of the papacy itself. Uh, Julius III was scandalous like the Renaissance popes. He, he was a retrograde in that respect. Marcellus II, who succeeded him, was a zealous reformer, but he only, uh, he only reigned for 22 days before he died. Paul IV carried on Marcellus's reform, uh, he was originally one of the Roman Catholic evangelicals. But by 1550s, he opposed Luther. He believed that the Roman Catholic survival required wiping out Protestants. In 1557, he issued the first official index of forbidden books, uh, including all the works of Erasmus, which, by the way, included the Greek New Testament, right? and translations of the Bible into any of Europe's native tongues. Uh, he revised that list in 1559. Uh, he banned the Roman Catholic Evangelicals' concilium uh, uh, produced by Contarini and those others. Right? This is this is the Church sort of purifying itself, so to speak. Except, I think that it impurified itself here. Uh, Pius IV was a brilliant diplomat and guided Trent to the papal triumph. Uh, Pius V, like Paul IV, was a devotee of the Inquisition, a persecutor of Protestants, witches, homosexuals, and other deviants. He was ascetic in his morality. Uh, He set the papacy on a long-term path of what Needham calls puritanical ethos. Uh, That is, uh, future popes could never go back the way the ones before the Reformation were. Um, And the moral reform of the papacy robbed the Protestants of moral reform as a major reason for the Reformation, leaving them with theological doctrine as the main reason. Well, I can't go into any of the rest of this. It's terrible. Huh. Well, I'll be here next week to answer questions if plenty of you would like to do that. Do you wanna do that? Okay, and maybe I'll fill out some of this stuff as well. But thank you for your uh, attention over the last six weeks. I've enjoyed this much as it's been like getting my teeth pulled to try to do it all this fast. Um, You know, we we owe the Lord such thanks for faithful people who suffered much in coming before us. One of the things that I was just thinking about in the car on our way down here this morning was, and I prayed about it, (laughs) Lord, forgive us for the ease with which we have complained about various things that we have suffered. We need to remember that all of our suffering comes to us from the loving hand of God who designs it to make us more like Jesus. And so instead of complaining about it, we need to thank him for it.